Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. Today's program is part of our listener support campaign. I want to thank David for supporting us on PayPal uh, at support.greatdetectives.net. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.greatdetectives.net, and I'm pleased to welcome our latest Patreon supporter. Thank you to Kevin, uh, coming on board at the detective sergeant level, uh, $7.14 or more per month. Again, thank you so much for your support, Kevin. Now we're going to get into today's program. And today we have an unaired audition program. The audition date is October the 1st, 1952, the series. This is O'Shea, and the title is Hong Kong. This was Dynamite. The story of a girl named Maya who looked like Ava Gardner in oriental makeup. The story of Macau, Macau on the South China coast, with a flourishing trade in opium, gambling, and hatchets for local hatchet men. This story behind the screaming headlines of the day. This is O'Shea. This is O'Shea. Radio's first dramatic presentation of radio's greatest adventure. On-the-spot coverage of news in the making. Each week, a new adventure from some colorful corner of the world. With Brandon O'Shea, overseas radio correspondent extraordinary. Tonight, we take you to Hong Kong. Come in, Brandon O'Shea in Hong Kong. This is O'Shea speaking to you from Hong Kong, where it's tomorrow and where approximately three million people wish it were yesterday. I'm standing on the balcony outside of my hotel room overlooking Regent Street, here in Victoria, capital of Hong Kong. I can see all the way from Victoria Peak, the snob hill of the British residents, to the Bund, the glutted harbor, and the teeming settlement of Kowloon on the North Shore. It's a sight that might remind an American of San Francisco, where California Street plunges steeply through Chinatown, down towards the Embarcadero. But the smell and the racket are native Chinese. Both have increased here in the past few weeks, along with the population of this already crowded island of Hong Kong. By plane, by ship, by Chinese junk, they keep pouring in. Refugees from the storm centers of the war-torn east. The plane I rode out of Shanghai had seats for 60 passengers and was carrying 75, including my sound engineer, Joe Friendly. We weren't allowed any luggage. The other passengers were carrying everything they owned in the form of jewelry and currency. A well-placed bribe had got Joe and me aboard with a half case of American bonded and our tape recorder. We put both to work as soon as we were airborne. <laughs> hey, this is good. How come? I don't know. Just arrived at my hotel. Must have been from that ad I posed for just before I left the States. You know, a man of distinction. You? Why not? Distinction breeds contempt. Old Chinese proverb. Yeah, well, it's the biggest cherry tree that attracts the wind. It's an old Japanese proverb. No. Yeah. 
Say, is there enough cord on that mic for me to tape record some of those people in the rear seats? Sir? Which people? The big blonde with the fur hat? No, the little redhead with the muff. Uh-huh. Okay. Give me a level. Okay. One, two, three. Testing. Two little girls near London dwell. More naughty than I like to tell. Upon the lawns, the hoops are seen. The balls are rolling on the green. That's the enough te- level. Oh, thank you, Joseph. May I start now? Please to begin. Cut number two. Ladies and gentlemen, this is O'Shea speaking to you aboard the last plane out of Shanghai. As this great overburdened craft struggles for altitude on its southbound mission of mercy... With a banjo we... on my knee. Uh, shut up or I'll make you edit this yourself. Oh, I don't mind. I ate a light breakfast. Well, bully for you. Cut number one. 15 April 1951. It is ten minutes now, ladies and gentlemen, since we took off from Gyeongsu Airport and turned our backs on Shanghai, perhaps for the last time. We are now flying low over the mud-yellowed waters of Hangzhou Bay, sped on by tailwinds in the urgency of the moment. But time has lost its meaning for many of these refugees, whose lives have held nothing but dark memories of the past and only a dim hope for the future. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to carry the microphone back through the plane and bring to you, if I can, at least a few meaningful fragments of their broken lives. Uh, Pardon me, young lady, do you speak English? Da. Uh, And your name, please? Sonia. Last name? Chermetyov, who cares? Ask for Sonia. Have you anything you would care to say to my American audience, Miss Chermetyov? American audience? No, I say nothing. Well, thank you, Miss Gromyko. I say nothing, and furthermore... Mark that for editing, Joe. Right, cut three. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for our first interview. You know, for those of us who think of Shanghai as an international city, it's surprising how many Chinese are numbered among these refugees. I'd like to bring you the voice of this distinguished-looking oriental gentleman. Uh, your name, sir? First, perhaps I should point out that my patronymic has quite a different connotation in English. My name, sir, is Arsin. Well, I see that adversity has not robbed you of your sense of humor, Mr. Sin. Or is it Mr. Ah? That, sir, depends upon how well I know you. Well, Mr. Arsin, I'm sure my audience will agree that there is hope for the Chinese people as long as its representatives can bear up under vicissitudes as well as you... As well as you are. Vicissitudes? Well, sir, as you accidentally say, one man's loss is another man's profit. Or as we Chinese would put it, what sauce for the goose may be too rich for the Mandarin duck. <laughs> I can see that you're a philosopher, Mr. Arsene. Would you care to enlarge on that theme for my American audience? When I was a young man, I spent many years in search of a philosophy suitable to the realities of 20th century China. I finally found it. I'm a war profiteer. Oh? I fear that your American audience would neither understand nor approve, but perhaps I may be of assistance. You see the couple up forward there, the bearded gentleman in black with the funereal manner and the vivacious young traveling companion. Ah, uh, the uh, Chinese girl? Makanese, the turbulent blending of half a dozen proud peoples. The gentleman is of Macau, too, but he prides himself upon his pure Portuguese blood. Well, he may. Well, that is just about all I allowed him to take out of Shanghai. In short, sir, theirs is a tale to tear your heart out. And I suggest that you interview them at once. Good day. And with that, Mr. Ah Sin clasped his tiny, boneless hands over his expansive belly, folded his three extra chins under the one he was born with, closed his small, greedy eyes, and went to sleep. I started up the aisle toward the couple from Macau, but I never got to them. Because the plane lurched to the left, dropped the bottom out of my stomach and me into an old lady's lap. So we fastened our seat belts, and she spent the rest of the trip giving me an exclusive on her plan to save China by transcribing Esperanto into Chinese ideographs. Around 4 p.m., we started losing altitude and coasted down across the South China Highlands toward Kowloon Point. 
Dusk was just settling over Hong Kong Airport when our pilot set us down. Yeah, Joe and I were the first ones down the ladder. We bluffed our way past the British Customs and had our mic set up for another try at interviews before our fellow passengers were cleared off the plane. I was anxious to get to that bearded gentleman from Macau with the vivacious young traveling companion. But I was stopped again. Because the first passenger route was that self-proclaimed prince of profiteers, that churlish chieftain of Chinese chicanery, Mr. Ah Sin. I see you have a way with the customs people. Would that I had known. You could have saved me the trouncing I have just taken at their hands. Tell me, how did you fare in your interview of that pauperized Portuguese and his lovely? Well, I had to choose between giving up the interview or ditto my breakfast, so I postponed the whole subject. <laughs> so that's how you do it. I trust that this poor old croaking voice of mine recorded to your satisfaction. As a matter of fact, I haven't played it back yet, but if Sidney Greenstreet doesn't care, I don't. <laughs> well, sir, what I have to say to you now will perhaps best stay out of range of that eavesdropping mechanism. Will you join me in a brief stroll whilst I convey to you my latest thoughts upon the subject? Okay, Mr. Ross, I'm going to keep it brief. If I don't get at least one good interview out of this trip, I won't have anything to go on the air with. Plenty of time. I assure you that bankrupt buccaneer with the beard will be viewed with high suspicion by the customs station. All right, take the mic, Joe. Keep it open. Gotcha, Dad. At least we can pick up this airport background noise and dub in something colorful later on, okay? Mr. Sin and I are going for a walk. Well, keep your distance. He might fall on you. (laughs) Your assistant is something of a witch himself. Now, about your projected interview with Senor de Castro. Oh, why are you so set on my interviewing this Senor de Castro? My dear fellow, you may interview anyone you like. But you must admit they are quite the most interesting couple on the flight. Well... At least half of it. What's interesting about him? You will find that out if you will follow my advice and say to him, Bives, the man's troubles may accumulate like the muddy silt in the estuaries of the Fuangpu, but unlike the muddy deposits of the venerable stream, they cannot always be dredged away. You know, I can't make you out, Mr. Arsene. Are you a practical joker or are you just trying to be mysterious? Mysterious only for the moment. When you get to know me better... You will find that I am positively sinister. In fact, hey, watch it. That was close. I'm sorry I had to grab you like that. That truck was coming right at us. Please, no apologies, Mr. O'Shea. I only hope that you may be able to save my face as painlessly as you've just saved my life. And with that, he rustled his heavy silk robe, turned on his heel, lifted his skirts, and trotted off across the field at a real good clip for a fat man. So I turned on my heel and went after a personal interview with the driver of that truck that had tried to run us down. It was parked directly under the cargo hatch of the plane. But they weren't unloading any cargo from the plane. They were unloading some suitcases from the rear end of the truck, which made Chinese sense. But it began to look like Prohibition Chicago when they opened up the suitcases and took out three Lend-Lease Tommy guns. Suddenly, I wasn't nearly as angry at that driver as I had been a moment before. And just as suddenly, when Senor de Castro and the girl emerged from the plane, I lost all interest in that interview. Because that reckless Chinese driver scooped me. In just a minute, I'll tell you how. I hate to leave you cliffhanging, but it's time for a word from stateside. This is O'Shea, standing by in Hong Kong. Hi, Aberbank, in the role of Brandon O'Shea. 
We are bringing you the first in a new dramatic series based on radio's own greatest adventure. This is O'Shea. And now back to Brandon O'Shea in Hong Kong. Okay, USA, this is O'Shea with the rest of the story. In China, where anything can happen and does every day, it's sometimes hard to tell what's worth reporting and what isn't. Maybe that's why so many of the foreign correspondents out here get disillusioned and get their on-the-spot reports in the peace and quiet of their own hotel rooms with the local papers spread out on the bed. Which is where I wished I had stood instead of where I was standing when those three hatchet men in the airport luggage jeep unpacked their suitcases and started unlimbering those Tommy guns. I didn't need to know Chinese to know that first shot meant stay out of the way. The next thing he said was self-explanatory, too. His two henchmen responded by raking the tires off the custom inspector's car, which made Chicago sense for clearing the getaway, but the next one didn't. It was aimed at our recording machine. My engineer, Joe, did a belly flop just in time. DeCastro went on talking to the girl as if nothing had happened. Then he raised his hands in a gesture of surrender and let them take him. They shoved him into the truck and drove away. You are the American? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, I'm an American. Perhaps you can help me. Oh, perhaps you can help me. I want to get the story behind that kidnapping. I'll tell you everything I know, but not here. Please take me away. Okay, okay. Hey, Joe, you all right? Yeah, Brandy, I'm okay. But look at this recording machine. Uh, can you fix it? Yeah, but... It'll take time. Okay, get on it right away. I'll meet you at the hotel. When? I don't know. I'm taking this eyewitness out for an interview. Hmm. What's your name, dear? Her name was Maya Riachi. I got the rest of her story over some Ramos gin fizzes in the Emperor Hotel bar. And later on, over a midnight snack in a room. But when she'd finished telling it, I wondered what I'd done wrong. I was sure I'd approached the problem from all the correct angles. But I still didn't know any more about why DeCastro had been kidnapped than I had four hours before. And I told her so. Please, Brandy, all these questions. Can we not talk about something more pleasant? Uh, that would be easy, Maya, but I have to ask questions and I have to get answers. That's what I do for a living. I would not take the bread from your mouth. But it seems to me in my ignorance that you would find it less tiring to refrain from saying things like, Who was that man? And instead say, I would be honored to know to whom you paid the compliment of allowing him to accompany you in the airplane. It would perhaps please you to enlighten me, for then I would be less ignorant and you would be less ashamed to know me. I see. Well, if I was intelligent enough to say all that, uh, what kind of answer would I have the uh, uh, honor of receiving? Then I would say that Signor Di Castro is my honorable uncle and I his miserable niece. Oh, I thought... Oh, that's great. I mean, very not bad. Maybe you could tell me how to get around the one about why he was kidnapped if he was broke. Perhaps his friend has done him the honor of ignoring his lack of prosperity. Well, you mean this kidnapping is a phony, that they're, they're going to hold him for a big ransom to save his face? Oh, no. My uncle is an accidental. He has no faith to lose. But if the kidnapper is a Chinese, he might have done my uncle the honor of ignoring his lack of faith as well as his prosperity. This is all too subtle for me. No, no. There is a way out. That is how you can help me. I can? Yes. When we receive the ransom note, you will come with me to Macau. Well, why Macau? Because in Macau, there are not so many laws as here in Hong Kong. They will take him to Macau. And what do we do in Macau? You will go to the kidnapper and pay the ransom in false money. 
I cannot do this myself without losing faith. Yeah, well, what about the kidnapper's face? He will have to accept the false money or he will lose faith. Well, how does that work? It would be discourteous to accuse a stranger of dishonesty. You're so right. Uh, uh, let's talk about something else. Listen. You hear? Yeah, how can I help it? Such beautiful music. It is? In my ignorance, I couldn't tell. It is a love song my old Amma used to sing me to sleep with. It tells of a poor peasant's wife when her husband comes in from the fields. She embraces him like this. Hey. But they do not kiss. Not yet. They drink tea and speak of the poor harvest. Then he recites a love poem to her by Chang Feng in 130 stanzas. By this time, it is dark. The same day? Yes, but they are too poor to light the lamp. So they cling together in the darkness. And they converse in low tones. They exchange butterfly kisses while discussing the works of the philosopher Li Po. How long does that go on? Is it not pleasant? I'm at the philosophy. Come here. Why, Brandy, my darling, you have been teasing me. You know how the song ends. In China, as I said before, it's sometimes hard to tell what news is worth reporting. Kidnappings, for instance, are as common as lawsuits in Occidental countries. But when I saw the headlines in the Hong Kong Mail the next morning... I decided that the Castro kidnapping, fake or not, was news. He was an ex-governor of the Portuguese colony of Macau, an ex-member of the International Opium Conference, and one of the biggest shipping tycoons in Shanghai. It seemed that my overstuffed and over-eager informant, Mr. Ah Sin, had been more reliable than he looked. De Castro had pulled out of Shanghai too late and left most of his ships bulging with cargo anchored at their docks at the Huangpu. They were still afloat, but he was sunk. Maya's theory that some friend had kidnapped him to save his face might be worth more than its face value. I was trying to make a rough guess as to how much of my time and trouble to Castro's face might be worth when my phone rang. Zoshe. Good morning, dear lover. It has come. The ransom note, Maya? Yes, I was right. They have taken him to Macau. I have arranged for a boat to take us there this afternoon. Well, what does the note say? It is in Chinese, but I will try to translate, even though it is impossible. That is approximately. Uh, approximately what? Almost. So in English, the form of address would be approximately honorable lady. Why, that cat. What does he mean calling you names? That is because I am Macanese. Only approximately Chinese. Uh, forget the translation and tell me what it says. It says that 100,000 Hong Kong dollars must be delivered to an emissary who will meet us at the Borromeo Warhouse. That is on the old fishing wharf. They will have a man there tonight at 10 o'clock and again tomorrow night if we do not arrive. But we will. You are still interested in my position? Yes. Uh, hold it. I'll be with you in one minute. We arrived at the island of Macau just before sunset. After the hugger-mugger of overcrowded Hong Kong, it looked like a peaceful little Portuguese fishing village. It didn't look at all like the reputation it has among seafaring men as one of the world's toughest seaports. But after dark, it came to life. (laughs) 
With the possible exception of Tangiers, Macau must be the only place in the world where the opium dens have neon signs. In fact, the only vice the Macanese officially frown on is panhandling. But Maya was an approximately Portuguese in Macau as she had been approximately Chinese in Hong Kong, which meant that in common with all good Latin ladies, all public places were out of bounds to her. So all I could do was listen as we walked down the Almeida towards the waterfront. Wait. There is the place at the end of the dock. You remember what you are to say to him when you hand him the package? Oh, that's if he's Chinese. Why do you think he might not be Chinese? If he turned out to be a trained seal, it wouldn't surprise me. Don't you love me? Oh, well, well, about that, I'll tell you more later. Now, first things first. Bye. One if by land, two if by sea. Advance and be recognized, you fat fumbler. Good heavens, it's you, Mr. O'Shea. I knew it was you before you opened your trap, Arsene. Indeed, in this darkness, eyes like a cat. No, nose like a hound. Who'd you hope to meet down here, the dragon lady? (laughs) You're alluding, no doubt, to the aroma of jasmine emanating from my humble person. Exactly. I always put on an extra dash of scent when my business brings me into some odoriferous locality, which is rather oftener than I would care to admit. In this case, fish. What brings you here like a thief in the night, as it were? But to pay off another thief, namely you. Thief? I? A scoundrel, irrefutably. But I incline to knavery rather than thievery. Whatever you say. Anyway, here's your ransom money. Splendid. It'll come in handy. I had quite resigned myself to using my own money to pay the ransom. Whoever did the girl raise all that money? Yes, she didn't. It's Boodle. Boodle, sir? Yes, stage money. Worth more than Chinese dollars, but it won't buy anything. She hoped to retrieve her uncle from his captor's clutches by this transparent ruse? Well, there was a speech supposed to go with it that would theoretically save his face. When I realized the case was yours, I didn't bother. Face, is it? That would seem to indicate a gentleman of Chinese persuasion. And I was so certain that this kidnapping had been arranged between De Castro and his business partner for the sole purpose of regaining dishonestly a share of the fortune they had lost to me as a result of, shall we call it, my Shanghai gesture. Well, it's your gesture and you're stuck with it. Not I, but De Castro's bottles. Plural? Numerous. Have you ever heard of the Fairy Flats dredging company? Uh, no, not lately. They called it Our Sin's Folly. I underbid every dredging company in the Huang Pu. For the contract to dredge the particular channel that served De Castro's not inconsiderable dockage in Shanghai. I did this at the moment when I knew he would be assembling his entire merchant fleet to make off with such loot as he could before the arrival of the invaders. It was perhaps one of the most remarkable dredging operations in modern maritime history. It was estimated that fully a year would be required to clear away the well-nigh incredible deposit of mud and river silt in which De Castro's ships were hopelessly admired. I see. So you made it impossible for De Castro to move his ships out of Shanghai. Now, where was the profit in that? Well, indeed. I had only to rent a sampan and scull across the river where a very nominal bribe secured me a contract disposing of De Castro's goods, bottoms and all. The invader's procurement of it. That's quite an operation. Spectacular, sir. Well, how did De Castro like that? <laughs> he settled for his plane fare. There remained only to secure the signature of his partner here in Macau, Senor Rayachi, that is. Rayachi? Well, that's Maya's last name. I should hope so, sir, for she is his daughter. It's funny she never mentioned that. 
Oh, but if, if all you have to do is get his signature, let's go and get it so I can write the tagline of my story and get out of here. That, Mr. O'Shea, I regret to say, is no longer possible. Senor Reacci has met with the most unfortunate accident. He fell down and cut his throat. That should have been tagline enough. I'm sorry it wasn't. One thing at least was settled in my mind. There was no point in my waiting around to hand over Maya's phony ransom because the kidnapper was expecting real money and he knew that Ah Sin was the only interested party who had a hundred thousand bucks to invest. There was also no point in looking for Maya where she was supposed to be waiting for me. But I did anyway and she wasn't there. I had a hunch where she'd gone. I didn't know where the hunch came from. But it might have had some connection with scene one where the kidnappers wasted all that ammunition shooting up our tape recorder. I took the early morning boat back to Hong Kong. Hey, Brandy, where the devil have you been? Goose chase, Mandarin duck style. Hey, how's the recording machine? You got it patched up yet? Yeah, just finished. Now, how about that tape that was on at the airport? Did you play it back yet? No, I just rewound it. should be okay up to the time it was wounded. Good, that's all I want to hear. Uh, can you run up to about two minutes before that? Sure. Uh, let's see. Should be about here. Good. Play it back now. Okay. Ah, there's a jeep coming in right after it tried to run you and the fat boy down. Yeah. No, my... Do not forget your instructions. Oh, that'll be De Castro. Yeah. Those men, they have guns. I am afraid for you. There's a girl. Do not worry. They would not kill me. But remember this, with your father dead, Arsene would need only my signature, and he will stop at nothing. So do as I told you. Involve the American as much as you can. It is our best protection. But I do not know him. It might not be that simple. For you, my dear, it will be. Okay, cut it. You know, that was a pretty good pickup. Yeah. I didn't hear any of that stuff, did you? No, and I still don't get it. He sounds like he expected to be kidnapped, which doesn't surprise me. But the stuff about our sin doesn't make sense. Unless... Five will get you ten. That's the old buzzard now. Come in. Well, sir, I scarcely expected to find you in. What did you expect to find? Well, sir, there's no reason for not being absolutely honest, if you will forgive my using the expression. But on the plane coming over from Macau, it suddenly occurred to me that you had recorded certain... Humorously intentioned statements of mine about Senor de Castro, which in the light of recent events might be open to misinterpretation. In short, sir, should that harmless-looking spool of magnetic tape fall into de Castro's hands, he might use it to render me persona non grata in Hong Kong, and perhaps even in Macau, which I always thought well-nigh impossible. Are you sure it's something you said about de Castro or something you think de Castro might have said about you? Okay. You interviewed him after all. Oh, let's stop horsing around, Arsene. You've had your ear glued to that door ever since you followed me here, and you know exactly what's on that tape. Yes. Well, you must understand its true value to me. May I insult you with an opening bid of a thousand dollars? Now, look, all I want is a straight story on the DeCastro kidnapping. If you can give it to me, you can have the tape. I can't use it anyway. On the contrary, you appear to be making very good use of it. However, I am not wrong. I am positive. The scoundrel de Castro meant to murder his partner in order to secure Riachi's Macau holdings and arrange the kidnapping to throw suspicion onto me. The rascal knew that I would pay any reasonable ransom in order to close my deal on his shipping, and that I would therefore be on the wharf at the appointed hour. The 
that you would misinterpret my present day and broadcast it to all the world. You believe me? Okay, Joe, give Fatso that spool of tape. Huh? Hey, we got some good background Forget down it. There. Forget it. We'll do this one without effects. Here. Now go dredge a river somewhere. I want to write my script. Fraser, you're a man of your word. Yeah, sure, yeah. That stuff is inflammable, you know. All you have to do is set a match to it. I'll do nothing of the sort. With you to back up my story, this has turned into a veritable trump card in my forthcoming negotiations with the Castor. I'll have his Shanghai loot and his late partner's holdings to boot. You are very clever, Mr. Swift. But you are suffering from a disease of the mouth. You talk too much. The Castor. Yeah. The start you gave me. What a heavy gun that is. You'll tire your arm. Chinese courtesy, Mr. O'Shea. Can you blame me if I want no more of Mr. Sin's particular kind? Why don't you boys go and be courteous to each other someplace else? I'm tired and I've got a deadline to meet. This will not take long. Now quit it. Put it down. Hey, shoot him in your own room. I got valuable equipment in here. DeCastro, watch it. Use your head. I more than half expected some shooting, and I wasn't going to risk my life trying to prevent it because in the first place, I didn't know how. In the second place, why spoil a good story? For a few seconds, I didn't know what a good one I might have spoiled. Because tragic as it was, it had the kind of twist reporters like to dream about, if they're too ethical to dream them up. Because the wrong man dropped dead and the shots came from the wrong gun. Maya was standing in the doorway and the gun in her hand was still smoking. She came into the room very deliberately, looked down at DeCastro's lifeless body, and tossed the gun on top of it. Then she turned to me. I hated him. For the same reason I hate you. But not enough to kill you. Now, wait a minute. He killed your father, but what did I do? My father. What do I care about that? He used to help him with his dishonorable schemes. You did the same to get your story. Now you have it. You can tell your Americans anything you want about me. I will not be listening. I started this report with a reference to the 180th Meridian, which makes it tomorrow in Hong Kong, where approximately three million people wish it was yesterday. And if you don't mind the view of my back hair, I wish it was too. This is Brandon O'Shea in Hong Kong, returning you stateside. This is O'Shea, stars High Averbank as Brandon O'Shea, and was directed by Albert Capstaff and produced by Joe Donahue. Musical score was composed and conducted by Frank Worth. Jerry Hausner is Joe Friendly. Herb Butterfield appeared in the role of Ah Sin. Virginia Gregg was Maya. This is O'Shea with the rest of the story. The unpredictable, lethal, and lovely Maya went back to Macau. A happy circumstance for her, since there is not much law there. And Fatso... Uh, Mr. Arsin, that is, went with her. And feeling strangely paternal, he's going to pay for her defense. May they live happily ever after in somebody's comic strip. Next week, South America and a story about a family spat involving several million people, a high government official, and his girlfriend. Judging from the pictures of her, it might be well worth covering. This is O'Shea, and that's 30. <laughs> 
This has been a presentation of the Hollywood Program Department. Welcome back. Let's just start off with the best part about this pilot. And that is that in an era when so many people were impersonating Sidney Greenstreet, I don't think anybody was better at it than Herb Butterfield. Who, of course, we'll hear tomorrow as the chief on Dangerous Assignment, but this is just a really good impersonation. I mean, absolutely nailed it. The series starred High Averback, which... I think judging by listener demographic series, who would probably be best remembered as the voice of the loudspeaker on MASH, a series he also produced. And I got reminded recently, as I was re-watching some F-Troop for our Storch special we're going to play on The Amazing World of Radio, he also was the executive producer of F-Troop. But to contemporary audiences for this program, he was probably best known as an announcer, particularly on The Bob Hope Show. It's an interesting portrayal of a reporter. And I do love at the end how they really don't care about these two villainous people. And they're like, and O'Shea's like, I can't do anything to stop this. And yeah, it's an interesting bit of realism. Plus, you know, the use of the sound recorder and that equipment to that degree is an interesting choice and certainly would make it stand out from other programs. I do have a feeling, having listened to even just two episodes of O'Hara, i.e. Jack Moyle's show after Rocky Jordan, that this does seem like it might be a little bit too similar to that series. It only ran for 26 weeks. And who knows, maybe this script might have been a reworking of a script from O'Hara. I don't have enough episodes of that series to know for sure. There were quite a few programs that featured reporter heroes. I was, uh, as we were looking at Mercedes McCambridge, she starred in a series called Wire Service as one of three rotating stars in the series who were each globetrotting reporters. And there were quite a few series that uh, focused on that on television. And I think that, uh, you know, as well as radio, and there was almost a glut of them. And uh, This is O'Shea is not even the only unmade pilot featuring a reporter. There was also a series, uh, San Francisco Final, starring Jeff Chandler, that we played all the way back in season one. And I honestly like San Francisco Final more than this. I think its grasp of the cultures are kind of uh, superficial at best. And I can see why this didn't get picked up. But it's an interesting oddity, particularly for Herb Butterfield's performance. Well, now we turn to listener comments and feedback. 
And we have this uh, comment from Kevin on Patreon who writes, Adam, I've been listening to The Great Detectives and some of your other podcasts for a few years and belatedly I'm getting around to contributing. I really appreciate your passion for old time radio and the effort you put into bringing these shows and the many wonderful performers and creators back to life. Thank you for doing what you do. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, and uh, I appreciate your support. All right, well, now we get to talking about our Tuesday schedule for next season. And this gets complicated, so let's start with this simple part of it. And that is that when we get into the Bob Bailey serials, we're going to be playing one serial per week. And so this time through, what we'll be doing is every Tuesday we'll feature two 15-minute episodes of Johnny Dollar, and then on Friday we will play three of these uh, 15-minute episodes, and that way we'll be able to get through all of the five-parters. Now, of course, there is a six-parter, and there's a nine-parter, and there are four serials where one episode is missing, so we'll have to work around that, but that is our general plan for the 58-week uh, Bob Bailey serial run. Now, what that means is that anything else we are doing on Tuesday needs to wrap up at the same time we finish all of the pre-Bob Bailey episodes. And I recalculated and I dropped a couple of short series, Meet Miss Sherlock and Martin Kane, and moved those to season 15. And uh, set I Hate Crime to start next week. And then I'm ha doing a little bit of research online, and every source for I Hate Crime has 13 episodes in circulation. I found a listing where we have 15 episodes. There were 16 listed, but one is a duplicate. So that means that my figurine is now off by two episodes which is frustrating. And after I Hate Crime, we had Sarah's Private Caper, which by nature of the series, I want to do while we are playing Sam Spade. So that has to say put. So what that means is that Matthew Slade will not be played this season. That's nine episodes. We don't have space for it. I did think about doing some silly things like having a week where I played two episodes of Matthew Slade rather than one, and then editing them so that, like when we have the uh, separate show feed, we have two episodes. And no, that's just too complicated. So we're going to go ahead and move Matthew Slade to season 16. And by then, hopefully, I will have acquired the Day of the Phoenix Saga, which I was going to play Matthew Slade without and hope that we somehow found it. But now, I guess I bought myself uh, two more years to try and track down a copy. So that still leaves us seven episodes short. And what are we going to do with those seven episodes? Well, here's the plan. First, we are going to replay Dr. Tim Detective. Now, this was a series that when we first did our, the Johnny Dollar serials, 
We did two episodes on Monday, two episodes on uh, Wednesday, and one episode on Friday, and then on Friday we threw in a 15-minute episode of another series. And that made sense at the time, and we played the Dr. Tim series essentially just entirely that way, and then a few years ago we found an additional episode and we played that 15-minute episode as a standalone. What we did made sense at the time for what we were trying to do, particularly with uh, Johnny Dollar. But I think because essentially we would play Johnny Dollar first, uh, it doesn't really make sense in the archive. Because to listen to Dr. Tim, you have to listen to the fifth part of the Johnny Dollar episode, which is in our Forgotten Detectives feed, disconnected from anything else. So that people can just properly enjoy this series, and then long-term, we can have uh, the episodes so that people can listen to them in our Forgotten Detectives archive, which is a pretty big feed for us. We've had 20-plus thousand downloads from it this year, so we're going to go ahead and go back through that series on its own. And then we will move Meet Miss Sherlock up to season uh, 14 from where we had it scheduled in season 15 after moving it down from season 13. And then I think we'll uh, tentatively plan on doing an episode of the series The Crime Club. Although... That one episode can be flexible and I can be open like if, you know, in a, a surprise episode pops up, I've got some room. But we will plan on an episode of The Crime Club and hopefully I can be done jiggling the schedule. So that's what we have planned for Tuesday. And uh, we uh, so again, uh, we're going to start next Tuesday with I Hate Crime. And then following that, Sarah's Private Caper for one week, our replay of Dr. Tim Detective, an episode of The Crime Club, and then uh, Tuesday and Friday will be yours truly Johnny Dollar Days for 58 weeks. And that will get us through the entirety of Season 14. Now with that, let's go ahead and thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Brian Patreon supporter since May of 2020, currently supporting us at the Detective Sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Again, thanks so much for your support. That will do it for today. Join us back here next Tuesday for I Hate Crime. But uh, listen in tomorrow as Steve Mitchell heads off on a dangerous assignment where... Kurt! Kurt, where are you? Mm -hmm. Hey, who are you? Marco. Look, where's the American? He, he... What is it? What has happened? Oh, it is Mr. Marco. It was Mr. Marco. Who was he, anyway? Why, he was staying in the next room next door. Where is the American who had this room? I wish I knew. Wait. The window is broken. Yeah, blood on the sill. The American who killed Marco went out the window and down the fire escape. Now, look. This is a matter of... I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, if you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.